Hi everyone, welcome to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo. Uh, Nick Polak is not here today, so we need to go out and get two uh, Roar Lions Roar staff members to join us on this edition of the pod. Uh, first up, Mr. Dan Smith. Dan, how you doing? I'm doing well, Bill. How you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm doing all right. Been a nice, quiet, calm, relaxing uh, weekend for all of us Penn State fans. Um, also, we have Matt here. Uh, so Matt, may, yeah, just say something, I guess. Hello, Bill. Hi. Nice to, nice to speak to you for the first time in like 20 hours or so. Yeah, I, I know, Matt. I wish it was more too, but whatever. Uh, yeah. Did you guys so, see each other or something this weekend? What, what was going on? Um, you see, we uh, all happened to be in Indianapolis uh, together. Uh, Penn State at a football game. Uh, it, it ended up going pretty well. I think uh, we're going to probably spend this edition of the podcast talking about uh, that game a little bit. We're going to talk about what went right for Penn State, what went wrong. You know, all the, all the bullshit you're used to hearing on this podcast. Uh, and hopefully we're going to be able to spend some time making fun of the fact that uh, Jim Harbaugh was not playing for a Big Ten championship, nor was he going to make the playoff, nor is he going to the Rose Bowl. So it's going to be just another normal edition of the pod. Uh, of course, we are here to discuss Penn State 38, Wisconsin 31. The Nittany Lions are your Big Ten champions the first time in this new format that Penn State has won uh, the conference the first time since 2008 that Penn State is the conference champions. Uh, MVP of the game was Trace McSorley, who uh, at a, we'll talk about this a little more, but at a certain point, um, Penn State's offense just turned into Trace, throw the ball as far as you can and just hope someone comes down with it. And more often than not, people came down with it, and it was a good time. But before we get to any of that, before we get to anything involving this game, I want all of us to go back to halftime of Penn State's game earlier earlier this year against Minnesota. Uh, at that point, the Nittany Lions were 2-2 two and two against a Minnesota team that was pretty decent on their home field. Going to halftime, it's 13-3 Minnesota. We're all thinking, you know what, maybe this season they just don't have it. We were all... Kind of expecting this team to not be able to really compete yet, but that may have been saying the bar too high. So, Matt, I want to start with you. From halftime of Minnesota to yesterday at night in Indianapolis with James Franklin holding up that trophy, how did we get here? <laughs> I, I well, if, we, if we knew the answer to that question, I think we would have would have never been at that that low point of, of halftime against the Gophers. But um, I think it's kind of, um, you know, if you look at the season on a, as a whole, it kind of mimics the way Penn State's played, especially in the last nine games, where that first half-ish of the season, those first four and a half games, just nothing really went right. You know, even in the wins against Temple and Kent State um, in September, it just never felt like every, anything was was going right. It was a lot of um, near misses and injuries and this, that, and the other thing. And that halftime of Minnesota is kind of the halftime of, of a game, if you want to think of it that way, where you know, kind of the, the, the season or the game is at a tipping point and you have to, you know, it's, it's going to go one way or another. And, you know, however it, however it happened, I don't think any of us really can, can definitively answer that. They, you know, resolve that this is going to be. We don't want our season to go this way, and we're going to do something about it. And you know, really, from Irvin Charles' eighty-yard catch and run shortly into the third quarter against Minnesota, all the way up to um, Trace McSorley taking a knee after killing the final three seconds last night in Indianapolis, that they just were never going to quit. They were going to to be the team that that they wanted to be. Um, I think if you look at it as a, you know, on an individual level or a, a you know, strategic level, it was a team that had two new coordinators that probably fought, you know, had a little bit of a learning curve early on, you know, especially with a brand new offensive system. And so I think there is a little bit that goes along with just getting comfortable with, with the changes that had been made with coaching staff. So I really think more than anything, it was just kind of that psychological, you know, we're not going to be that team that goes six and six and has questions about the future of the program we're gonna we're gonna do something about it and and they found a way to do it yeah dan uh same question to you like matt brought up something that i think is kind of interesting which is the 
uh, you know, two new coordinators. By all accounts, it seems like there was maybe a new way that things were being done uh, in terms of, you know, James Franklin being a little bit more hands-off. We, I think we all expected there to kind of be the, the team would need some time to get adjusted to Joe Moorhead and Brent Pry and their way of doing things, but do you think it was simply, or, or at least in what you've seen uh, with this team, do you think it was just simply a case of getting used to, uh, you know, offensive coordinator Joe Moorhead and defensive coordinator Brent Pry, or were there maybe some other things that, uh, some other things that played major roles in how this team progressed throughout the course of the year? It seems to me like it was a combination of things. Uh, definitely needing some familiar, some time to get familiar with the new coordinators, the new systems. Being a young team, and you know, having it be early in the season, still relying on a lot of young guys to to make plays, especially once the injuries hit. Those injuries obviously playing a big factor. Um, you know, the the Minnesota game. It, you know, we talk about halftime in Minnesota. It, part of why it was so disheartening was because of the way the coaching staff really handled the Michigan game. And, I, you know, it goes back to, uh, I think, when, when people were starting to bail was when James Franklin decided to kick that field goal down 28 nothing against Michigan. I certainly was one of the people who was very critical of that decision. Um, you know, early in the third quarter of a four-score game and you're already waving the white flag and saying, you know, the next 30 minutes, we're not even going to have a chance. Um, and then they come out and just look terrible in the first half. Of that game. I mean, I remember I was, you know, already planning at halftime of the Minnesota game. I'm like, well, I'm probably, you know, I was going out in, in Philadelphia and I was like, well, I can catch the train that uh, it's going to happen. You know, that's mid, you know, midway through the third quarter. Um, and then, you know, they had that 80 yard touchdown to Irvin Charles. And I was like, I, you know, I guess I'll stick around for the fourth quarter. I was sort of like on the fence about it. You know, that's, that's where we were this season. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was like an afterthought at that point. Cause you know, I'm on the, oh, it looks like we're going to go two and three. Uh, you know, it, it, there was, um, you know, I think, I don't think, uh, with, you know, and it's anything other than hindsight for us to have had the. Uh, you know, the feeling I do not regret, you know, being, you know, uh, being the way I was about that uh, at halftime in Minnesota, because yeah. it was a very fair assessment of where they were, um, you know, because the injuries were one thing, you know, uh, Temple ended up being a better team than we thought. Hey, those, those guys tricked us again. Um, but, you know, it was uh, it was very disheartening where they were at that point in the season. And, uh, uh, you know, it's. Uh, it, it, it's certainly not something where I look back and go, I, I was such a fool. It was a, it was you know, very much a situation where it looked like it was going to be another season of, uh, of treading water. Definitely. And, I, I mean, yeah, when we look back on it, Minnesota was better than we thought they were going to be. Temple was better when, than uh, we thought they were going to be. Pitt better than we thought they were going to be. So it's not like, you know, it was just an early season. Like, you're playing Washington schedule with three teams that, you know – most people can't find on a map. It, it was just a, it was weird watching this team early on. And then all of a sudden it just kind of clicked. And the next thing, you know, Penn state is, you know, throwing the ball over the field and, you know, scoring almost at will at some times it was, it was weird. It was something that I don't think any of us were used to. And like you said, at Minnesota halftime in Minnesota, uh, I won't reveal who it is just out of respect to them, but there is a Roar Lions Roar staff member who uh, either at halftime in Minnesota or sometime before that, I don't remember exactly when, their exact words were, Franklin's buyout is, uh, his exact buyout, you know, 12 million, 15 million, whatever it is. When does that buyout start to look like an investment? And a lot of people were at the point where they were thinking, Whatever it costs to just get James Franklin out of here because he seems a little in over his head, that that is something that Penn State needs to do. I was certainly guilty of it. Uh, Matt, I think you were probably a little more patient than most. Dan, it seems like you were pretty close to that, but there were just there was zero reason to think that on December third at around eleven fifteen p.m. we would all be standing 
you know, either in our living rooms or at bars or at the game or wherever we were jumping up and down and hugging people and texting and calling friends and all that because Penn State just won the Big Ten. Penn State had gotten to the game over Ohio State and over Michigan, which at that point looked like they were two of the three best teams in America along with Alabama. Penn State beat one of them, another one of them, uh, the as Dan once so eloquent we called him literal sociopath that they have as a head coach, kind of shot them in the foot and kept them from making it as far. And I understand that's revisionist history, but I don't care. It's Jim Harbaugh. And now Penn State's the champion, 38-31. And this game also seemed to kind of follow a script that we saw in, say, the game against Pitt or uh, the game against Minnesota. Penn State falls behind early. Uh, going at a half, there was a time where it was twenty-eight to seven in the second uh, in the second quarter, and uh, Penn State's win probability was down to like three percent or something just absurd like that. At halftime, it was something like ten percent, and then in the second half, Penn State just starts pouring it onto Wisconsin. Everything Penn State wanted to do, it did. Everything Wisconsin wanted to do, Penn State would not let it happen. It was crazy to watch, but let's get back to early in the game. It's Whatever, whatever time it was, in well, the, can can we can oh, we ahead. begin with the with the pregame actually? Like, what what was your feeling before kickoff? Like, you know, let's say when when you were, and I know you guys were both in Indianapolis. Yeah. You know, what was what was sort of the vibe there for you guys before the kickoff? Well, I mean, I think, I, I think when you make it to this point, when you make it to a championship game, everyone has the same, more or less, the same thought process, like. You know, we've made it this far because we've survived a meet, you know, just a really tough schedule. We've survived, you know, having to play Ohio State, having to play Michigan, uh, just some really tough stuff that was in our way. We can do this. We can win this football game. We know Wisconsin's a good team. Ohio State's a better team. We beat Ohio State. We can do that sort of thing. So, to me, and Matt, you can correct me if I'm wrong, there was a sense that, one, Penn State was in terms of just pure numbers and the enthusiasm gap, the gap between Penn State and Wisconsin seemed pretty huge. And two, there was a sense that, listen, we're here. Like, I understand that most people um, had the mindset of, uh, you know, we go back to halftime in the Minnesota game. None of us thought we'd be here, so we're very fortunate. But we're here. This is awesome. This is really cool. Let's make the most of it. Yeah, a couple of things that, that jump out to me were, yeah, obviously we um, probably 70, 30, 75, 25 Penn it's, State it fans, the Wisconsin like fans. And we, um, and I, and I then, do want to clarify, I do want to clarify, like when you hear people who support one team over the other say that, 99% of the time they are just overestimating because, you know, you're mingling with your own fans, you're going to places that have your own fans. I was walking around downtown Indianapolis uh, the day before the game, the night before the game, the day of the game, it was there was just blue, man. Everywhere you look, there were there were Penn State people, and Wisconsin people would kind of just pop up everywhere else. I believe Brian Bennett from ESPN tweeted something like uh, he thought it was like five to one Penn State to Wisconsin, like just it was awesome. Yeah, was I saw as many as ten to one was the stuff that I've been reading. Yeah, wow. just and I was I was at my house in suburban Philadelphia, yeah. so I was. Uh, you know, I, I had my own perspective on this. I will say uh, the pre, the pregame thought that I really had, um, you know, as somebody watching it on TV, it was, uh, who is Joel Klatt? <laughs> yeah, I mean, first of all, because I thought I thought Charles Davis was doing the game with nope. uh, with with Gus Johnson because I think he had done a Big Ten championship or two previously. But um, so then that led me to looking up Joel Klatt, and first of all. The picture that he has on his Wikipedia page is a picture of <laughs> Gary Barnett grabbing a big old handful of that ass. <laughs> Second yeah. of all, I think Joel Klatt wrote his own Wikipedia page because it says things like when he was a minor league baseball player. After he reported for spring training with Eugene, he realized he would never make it in the big leagues. He then left the team in baseball and walked on to Colorado. Like, that's not what somebody writes as a third person. And then it, like... It says, like, his hobbies include golf, learning the guitar, and being a Boston Red Sox fan. 
or someone copied like the, the the media notes or something from his Fox Sports profile on the Wikipedia. Possibly, I would say his agent, but that seems much more likely to be something that someone named Joel Klatt would just do themselves. He is a guest commentator weekly on the. Yeah, I was about start, to read that, this that one. That starts well. No, the thing that you're gonna that I hope you would mention the, is that he is a guest commentator sh- weekly on the starts two separate sentences. No, I was going to bring up the fact that one of the, the shows that he's a guest commentator on opens with the official Joel Klatt theme song performed, performed by TC Fleming of KTC. That's a big get getting, getting TC Fleming to do your theme song. Yeah. I mean, like if I, I mean, I'm, I've heard uh, that, KTCK is essentially the Red Hot Chili Peppers of uh, their scene. So, uh, but yeah, like Joel, Joel Klatt's fine. I mean, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever like really paid attention to him. He's not like Ed Cunningham, where you know Ed Cunningham is just like an affront to calling college football games. So, I don't hate him. Well, like, yeah. I had never heard of him because I don't, I don't pay attention to any uh, West Coast college football so i know nothing about college like i the first thing i had ever seen of colorado football was that pac-12 championship on friday night where they embarrassed themselves yeah yeah well oh well yeah. uh so yeah let's yeah. uh so that those were my pregame thoughts that was the expertise it, i brought in yeah. going in there i, I was oh, figuring going back real quick to, okay, to just a couple of things before before bill just rudely interrupted me as bill does well no it was more that i was i was very interested to see like what path Dan was trying to lead us down, and I'm glad to see it was one uh, that ended at Joel Klatt's Wikipedia page. <laughs> Most of my contributions to podcasting are me reading Wikipedia's. <laughs> <laughs> but, but real quick, the you know, there was the, the enthusiasm gap was certainly there between Penn State and Wisconsin. Wisconsin's been there, I think this is their fourth or fifth time in the game, and um, but I think the unique thing was you had two fan bases that very much had a we can't believe we're even here yeah. playing for this. Um, yeah. you know, obviously, Penn State fans know where that came from, but Wisconsin had that brutal, brutal schedule that no one expected them to navigate nearly as well as they did. Yeah. And so for, the, for them to be here was you know, just as much a surprise as it was for Penn State fans. So I think it was very much a, we're just glad to be here, hopefully it's a great game kind of mindset. And I think that's kind of, kind of where I was going into it. Um, you know, Win in the worst case scenario is you're going to the Rose Bowl and lose in the worst case scenario is you're probably going to Dallas and playing in a, a New Year's Six game. So um, it was just it was kind of a just I don't want to say a festive atmosphere all around, but it was a pretty relaxed atmosphere yeah. given the, the the what was at stake in the in the big picture of of the game. Yeah. Plus, like Wisconsin has literally like no school has been to this game more than Wisconsin has. They know like. One, what, like what just happens in this game, and two, like if they don't win, they're in the same division as you know Iowa and Northwestern, and like there's just not a lot really keeping them from getting back there. With Penn State, you know, Penn State should like not have a functioning football program right now due to NCAA sanctions, and. Like, just never been to this before. There was going to be that enthusiasm gap no matter what. And I want to stop saying enthusiasm gap because it reminds me of, um, you know, the 2016 presidential election that I'd rather not think about right now. So let's get into the game. Uh, I know it's Dan. Is there any any place you want to take us before we get in? Or did you already bring us down the path that you had mapped out for us? Yeah, I got nothing. All right, good. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so let's just talk about how this team fell behind early. Um, it seemed to me like it was a little... Like, I like I was just kind of sitting there like, everything is going wrong. At a certain point, you would think that things even out a little bit. Uh, and that did end up being the case, but something like, you know, Penn State can't block anyone. And it looked like last year's offensive line with Trace McSorley behind it. Or uh, Penn State having the worst fumble luck of any football team that I think I've ever seen. Just ridiculous. So, Dan, what were your thoughts as you were watching this team? You were watching it fall behind uh, 14-7, 21-7, 28-7, 28-14 early on. And did you have faith that if, you know, once they get into the locker room, they'll figure out whatever's wrong and kind of just 
flip the switch and run Wisconsin off the field in the second half? I was, I didn't get too low. Um, when they were down 28-7, I distinctly remember saying, all right, they need a touchdown before halftime and then they're okay, which was very much how I felt about the Ohio State game. Um, and ended up that ended up bearing out uh, as well. Um, I, you know, there was, I remember distinctly that I think when, when they lost a lot of people was when they missed the, on the, the two fourth downs. Um, because I think people, you know, reverted back to their instinct of like, that's what desperate teams do. Um, you know, especially that first one when they, when it, you know, it was still, uh, you know, they were within, uh, you know, striking distance and, you know, it was still 21-7. I, I liked the call just because I felt like they were moving the ball okay. I felt that, like they had a good chance to get it. So I didn't mind the call at the time. But most of the people I was in the room with were furious that they made that call because, you know, it, 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 when you look at the scripts of way, the ways a lot of football games go, that is sort of a desperate Yeah. I think with this team, it's a little bit different, especially because they're such a good second-half team. I, I liked it. I didn't mind it. Um, I can certainly understand the case against it. And I think if you look at, you know, situations and numbers and whatever the case it is, probably not the right move. But I just felt at the time I was like, the offense is doing okay. I feel like they have a good chance of getting this. Um, you know, and it just ended up being that they didn't uh, they did not pick up the uh, the blitz there and did not have an option on that. And, uh, you know, Wisconsin defended it well. Um, and for a lot of teams, that would have been a death knell. You know, that would have been, you know, they, you just handed the ball up to a team up two scores, you know, 40 yards away from the end zone. They marched down and score, and that's that. Um, but just knowing this team, I said, all right, three touchdowns is tough, but you have an opportunity to march down here and get some something before halftime. You know, you got to get it done, and then you're, you know, you're okay heading into the second half there, you know, being a second-half team like they are. Yeah, this this is it's a really confident football team. So I wasn't sitting there thinking, you know, they're gonna go for it. They don't get it. It's over. Like, whatever. It's early on in the game, but there's no chance they could turn this around because they didn't get a fourth down once or twice. Like, you know, that happens. And whatever. I there were plenty of people who were on Twitter going, uh, who were just getting going. Like, why is James Franklin getting this desperate? Like. The word Matt, the word desperate, came up a fair amount early on, uh, mostly because of those fourth downs. And did you like ever get the sense that the team was being desperate, or were they just doing what they would do in basically any scenario? And you know, it just wasn't working out, so it didn't look as brilliant as it, you know, as it does when things do go the right way. I don't think I'd say that there was a level of desperation there. I think it was. Things weren't going very well. Um, you know, they couldn't stop Wisconsin with any consistency. The offense was very much, um, you know, I wouldn't say it was stuck in neutral, but it was not moving the ball consistently. And I interpreted both decisions to go for it on fourth down as trying to trying to get something going, trying to sustain a little bit of, um, I don't know, I, I always say momentum because I don't think it's a, you know, everyone talks about momentum being this huge thing. I don't think it's nearly as significant as it is made out to be, but I think it was trying to just you know, light a spark. This you know team that hadn't had anything go right. Just okay, let, let's let's get this couple yards here. Let's you know keep this drive moving. Let's give our defense a little bit of, more of a rest. And um, so I, that's I guess how I interpret. It. I had zero problem with either call. Um, and I know we're going to get to here in a minute, but I think one of them kind of set up the the turning point in the game for me. But I think it was very much a, from a number standpoint, I know we've had Kevin Rudy write a couple of things on the site, talking to him during the game. Um, you know, he had zero issue with either of them from a, a statistical standpoint. It was kind of a coin flip, whether you should punt or kick. Um, but so in those situations, I always think you go down to a coach knowing his team and knowing, you know, having a feel for what they need or what, you know, what he needs to do, you know, in the game. Um, and I think we're, Neither one of them was the kind of situation where by not getting it, they, you know, put a nail in their coffin or anything like that. I think it was, um, we have a tendency as fans to overanalyze every single little detail of a game and fourth downs are obviously big plays, but I don't think, um, you know, when you look at them in the big picture of the game, I think it was, there were just a couple plays that didn't go Penn State's way. Um, and like I said, I think one of them kind of 
even though it wasn't successful, led to a, a pretty big turning point for Penn State. Yeah. So let's uh, talk about the turning point, because the one thing that this team does really well is it has this amazing ability to give us that one moment where we all sit there and we all go, okay, that's it. Everything's going to be all right. Uh, we've seen that in a couple of games this year. Uh, and I think that this game had one, maybe two of those moments. Uh, Matt, for you, what was the moment where you went, okay, you know what, Penn State's going to win the Big Ten Championship. It's okay. Well, it was kind of the whole sequence. So I guess you want to take it as a larger moment than, than a single play or single drive. Um, so I just mentioned, you know, the, the second fourth down attempt and resulted in the fumble set up Wisconsin on, gosh, their own you know, 40 or whatever it was after the, the scramble for the ball that really was utterly meaningless as, um, regardless of who recovered it. Um, defense comes out, forces a three and out, and then Wisconsin punts and Penn State has the ball at their own 10-yard uh, line with, I believe, like two and a half or three minutes left and went right down the field and I'm looking here a minute and a half in eight plays capped by that um, Blacknall catch and run for the touchdown to bring it within two and then getting to halftime um, like Dan said at 28-14 I think that gave it it's a 14 point game but it's two scores um, you, all you need is you force a punt or force a turnover or get the ball back without giving up points and score and all of a sudden it's a one 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 possession game and that's exactly kind of how it played out Wisconsin comes out drives down the field to some degree misses the 40-ish yard field goal one play later McSurley finds Blacknall again, and it's a one-score game. And I think that really, the crowd's into it. The You watch this, the emotion of the Penn State bench that was into it. And I think that was the moment where they really started to feel like, okay, we can do this. Yeah. I The, the good and the bad thing about a lot of younger teams and uh, something that we've really hammered is that this is a really young football team. Uh, on offense, they lose one starter. On defense, I think they lose two or three. I think they lose three guys. You know, not including guys who are going to declare for the draft early uh, next year. So, with those young teams, every once in a while, they they can be very prone to those big swings in emotion. And there are times when it hurts teams. But for some reason, Penn State has done a decent job avoiding those just really low valleys. But when they're able to get that one little spark that gets them on a high, they're really good at sustaining those things. And for me, I thought the Blacknall touchdown, uh, Wisconsin gets the ball to start the second half. They they go down the field. They're doing that Wisconsin offense where it's like, you know, sh- run, run, short pass, medium pass, run that goes okay, whatever. Then facing Penn State's fans, just the fans are riled up. And they start going, and they start going, and they miss a field goal, and it didn't seem like the Wisconsin kicker wanted anything to do with that kick. And he ends up pushing it to the left, and then the next play, McSorley just chucks one down the field. Saeed Blacknall shows off that big playability that he has. He gets into the end zone. It's 28-21, a one-score game. Uh, You know, there's 11 minutes left in the third quarter, and it's, okay, the tide is turned, so to speak. This team's going to end up winning. Uh, Dan, what are like? What's the moment? If there is one that maybe we didn't mention, or if there's something you want to expand on uh, for you, where this, you know, you saw the championship happening. Yeah, I mean, I said in the first half, you know, I needed to see them score a touchdown before halftime to think they had a chance, and they did. So I was like, all right, you know, it's it's not good, but it's you know we're, we're We've got a chance, but it's, you know, key is going to be how do we start the second half, you know, because it's one of those sort of self-fulfilling prophecy type things, I think, where, you know, if we, if you have a good start to the second half, then Wisconsin's got in their mind, they're like, oh, this is that, that second half Penn State team. And uh, meanwhile, on Penn State's sideline, they're, you know, all right, we're, we're, uh, you know, we're back now. So when they uh, held Wisconsin on that third down on the first drive, that was where I was like, all right. We're, we're good because I knew that they had you know their second string kicker because their kicker was out for the year yeah so I was very optimistic that they were going to miss that field goal um, knowing that and they did uh, so immediately when it was actually not even when they missed the field goal it was when they stopped them on third down I was like okay we're we're in business now uh, and then you know that that uh, 
very quickly uh, was proven true when, uh, you know, they go one play 70 yards to Blacknall on the next one. Um, so I was, I was feeling actually quite confident uh, at that point, uh, despite the, the score, because it just felt like, you know, like you said, you know, the, the tide had very much turned. Penn State's in their wheelhouse now. They're in the second half. And, uh, you know, it's, it was you know, the defense that showed that they can, uh, they can finally stop these guys. Yeah, um, you know they had a couple stops in the first half, but for the most part, they looked like Wisconsin. You know, was in control when they had the ball, and uh, yeah, you know, being able to show that you know a little bit of uh, resistance to that was key. And I don't know what happened in the locker room at halftime, but whatever Matt Limegrover did with the this like patchwork offensive line, where from left to right it was the starting left guard at left tackle. Like the third string, you know, guard who fills in in either position in the pinch at left guard, the starting center, the starting right guard, and then like the third string right tackle. At a certain point, Wisconsin just stopped being able to do anything. Like it was ridiculous. This Wisconsin front seven is one that has, I mean, the defensive line hasn't really done it to an extent, but that linebacking core uh, with TJ Watt and Vince Beagle and those dudes was able, they just couldn't get to McSorley anymore, and McSorley was in a spot where he could just stand there and fire these bombs down the field to his receivers, and every receiver, like, I mean, we saw people make the Space Jam, Michael Secret stuff joke on, like, Twitter and whatnot, but that's what it seemed like. Everyone was just going up, hauling passes in, and doing something, like, just giving that shot in the arm that Penn State really needed, so the second half for Penn State was touchdown, 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 field goal. Uh, Trace McSorley runs backwards for a while, and Penn State wins the championship. It was incredible. Uh, so we, uh, yeah, you know, we talked about that. Uh, next thing up, yes, okay, that leads into the next thing. Sorry, I'm still out of it. I am running on no, like no sleep right now, so I apologize. Uh, at a certain point, like we said, things just started working for Penn State that weren't working. In uh, that weren't working in the first half, Dan. To start with you, like, what were those like the big things that, as the second half started and Penn State started finding its rhythm on really both sides of the ball, like, what were the things that Penn State was doing that was working in the second half that wasn't working in the first? Well, you brought up the point about uh, you know making adjustments on the offensive line. You know, Penn State, with the way that they run their offense, you know, it's usually those five guys. Maybe you get a running back picking up a blitz or something, but they did something a little bit differently that they don't normally do, and that was a couple of times they left Gesicki in there to block. Yeah. He's not particularly great at it, but I think it was a different look that they might not have been expecting there. Um, I think on that Blacknall touchdown, he was the one who picked up the blitz in McSorley's face. Um that, that first, the 70-yard one, I think it was uh, Gasicki who picked it up. And, you know, he he nearly got bowled over, but he, he held enough resistance to give McSorley time. Um, yeah, and I, I think it was just, you know, slight adjustments like that. Um, you know, they, they, you know, got more confident throwing the ball. Um, they ran it just enough to keep them honest, but they were relying more on the passing game in the second half. I think they were behind enough where they just said, you know, we, you know, we need, we, only run now, you know, we're not running up to running to set up the pass anymore. We're going to run when they, you know, drop more guys into coverage, you yeah. know, and we see that. And that's part of the, you know, the Moorhead system where you, you, you make the defense sure they're, uh, you know, pre-snap look before you make a call on the play. Um, so, you know, they did run and, you know, they, they had a decent, they did a better job in the second half running the football, but they ran sparingly and they only ran when it was, you know, it made sense with the looks, um, you know, they were passing the ball more and, uh, they were effective in that, you know, they, I think that they, they just said, you know, we, yeah, there's no air of deception that we need to have anymore here by, you know, running on in what looks like passing situations and everything. Both of these teams know, you know, what's going on here. You know, we're going to try to take advantage of whenever we see one-on-ones, uh, and, you know, and they know Wisconsin's going to be trying to, to make sure that Saquon Barkley doesn't beat them. So, um, you know, I think it was just a matter of uh, attacking them for the most part where, you know, where the game had to be decided on those. And, you know, Penn State's receivers were very much up to the task. Yeah, there was uh, 
there there was one moment in the second half. Penn State was driving. I believe this was the drive where uh, Saquon caught that wheel route and uh, Gus Johnson very very eloquently called uh, Trace McSorley a wizard. Uh, where they were leaving Chris Godwin, you know they were putting a dude one on one with him. Uh, there's no safety over there. So if Godwin's able to get one step past a dude, like it's a touchdown. And there, there seemed like there were a few moments like that with just how Wisconsin was like trying to bring pressure and maybe trying to throw McSorley in the lineoff, and they just couldn't do that for some reason. And I mean, Blacknall is probably the guy who, uh, who had the most success against that. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that that's that is really probably the biggest thing too is that if you're game planning for Penn State. You know, Saeed Blacknall coming into the game is not a guy where you're like, we need to shade safety help over to this guy. But he's also you know? like, on t- in terms of and, and, in terms of raw talent, he may be the most talented receiver that Penn State has. So yeah, it, but you know, you look at the tape throughout the season. Only in the last couple of weeks have they they even started running him in non fly routes. You yeah. know, they they and and I I had noticed that in the last couple of games that he had been starting to do a little bit more route running. Uh, you know, with the typical route tree as he's gotten back from injury. Um, but, you know, I don't, I, you know, who on you know, in either fan base or, saw that kind of a game coming from Blacknell? You know, there's just yeah. not a press for that. And that was a big thing. It's just that they're going to leave one-on-one matchups with Blacknell. And it was up to him to be able, you know, he ran a nice curl route on that first touchdown at the end of the first half. Yeah. That, you know, obviously it was an overplay. Uh, you know, uh, with them trying to play, but you know that's a that's a route that you know I didn't think he was able to run because you know he just they're just I assumed that the reason he had never been doing it before was because it wasn't in his arsenal, and you know in these last couple of weeks he's really shown something. So yeah. I think he's a you know he his you know just at the very tail end of the season, uh, the way that he's stepped up has been had been sort of a, an underreported thing in the first place, and I'd noticed it a little bit, but I hadn't really thought much about it until I saw, you know, how much he produced in the, in the game against Wisconsin there. So, yeah. uh, you know, that was, that was a huge thing for them is that they had a, a, another option on the outside, especially with what we're talking about there, where they felt like they needed to use Casicula more in the, uh, in the, uh, blitz pickup. Yeah. Then there were, then there was Deshaun Hamilton who had one of those 2014 yeah, Deshaun Hamilton games, eight, 18, no touchdowns, but he, he was a monster. Like it was, it was good. It was a lot of good. Uh, Matt, the one thing that I don't think that Dan and I touched on too terribly much was how the defense locked down. Uh, I mean, I, you haven't gotten the chance to go back, rewatch, and all that, but just from watching it, what did the defense start doing to not get manhandled by Wisconsin's offensive front? I th- they were able to do just enough to slow down the running game. Um, yeah. you know, I'm looking at Clement stats here. He's still 164 yards and Shaw had another 62 and, um, Ogunbowe or however you pronounce his name. Wisconsin had 241 yards rushing. And if you take out, um, Houston's, uh, losses, they had over 250 yards on just 45 carries. So it wasn't like they all of a sudden shut down the Badger running attack. Um, but they were able to get stops when they needed them. We talked about the, the, stop after a 45 or 50 yard drive that led to the long field goal miss. Um, obviously the stop on fourth down at the end of the game. So they, 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 they've saved their, their big plays in the running game for the right moments. The other thing that I think they really didn't do in the first half was they got just enough pressure on Houston that he was just a little uncomfortable. I, mean, I, I caught the tail end of the, the, um, Big Ten football and sixty replay that BTN does um, every week, where they you know cut up the game and the you know just fit into an hour of programming time, and that play before, I think it was a second down play, maybe third third down, um, right before the field goal that Wisconsin did make in the second half to make it um, 31-28. They I can't tell you who it was who hit Houston as he threw it, but they had I believe it was the tight end wide open with no one within ten yards of him. Yeah. That, if he if, if the if the ball is on the money, he is, you know, can roll into the end zone. There is no one was going to touch him, but they hit him right just as he threw, and the pass was just enough off where it fell incomplete. Um, they had a couple other sacks later in the game. Um, Cole Farmer had a big one that sticks out to me. Um, so they they weren't. It was almost like like the the offensive version of of the Penn State offense where they weren't you know cl- cl- clicking on all cylinders. 
but they made plays when they needed to make plays, um, you know, to, to stop drives or um, force field goal attempts. You know, they obviously just gave up the three the three points in the second half. I would love to see the yard breakdown by half two. Yeah, and you know, I, I you because and I and I think it is a case of you know them seeing what Wisconsin was doing and then seeing what was working, what wasn't, and making those you know we've talked about it all season the halftime adjustments. And it was an interesting thing at the in the first drive for Wisconsin where I thought they tried to anticipate that. They their first two first downs on that drive they passed, which they never do. They always are a, a run first down, run second down, pass on third down if if you know they need that much yardage kind of team. You know, very by the book. Uh, you know, we're gonna you know what we're gonna do. You try to stop us kind of thing. And they came out in the second half, and I you know, I think being cognizant of the fact that Penn State likes to you know, adjust for those things. The first two first downs they had, you saw Houston thrown, which was, you know, very un-Wisconsin-like. And I think, but I think also by doing that, they sort of, you know, dumped out any, uh, any of their, you know, uh, tricks, you know, for the second half there. Cause it's not like they're a crazy creative passing game. Anyway, the only thing they can do to surprise is something like that, where they throw on a running down and, you know, they sort of empty that out in the first uh, drive there. And I think after that, like you're saying, you know, the pressure started getting home. They changed up the looks a little bit and, you know, just had confidence that their guys, you know, as they rotate that defensive line, they rotate a corner that their guys were going to be well rested enough to you know, start taking advantage of an offensive line wearing down, uh, you know, as the game went on. Yeah, it also uh, didn't help Wisconsin that. At a certain point, Brandon Bell kind of just said, yeah, you know what, I'm done with all of this. And he just started flying around like a madman. Like There was that one where, I think he was, I think he got to Houston, where he just saw that on the blitz nobody was going to be picking him up. So he starts taking off, then the running back tries to go low on him. He's like, yeah, I'm just going to jump over you right now and then propel myself. That was the, that was the strip sack, and they recovered the ball. But yeah, yeah. He, he jumped over him in one move. Yeah, down and it was hands. ridiculous. Like he, like I'm very glad that for a dude who his basically his entire Penn State career it seemed like, you know, he's really really good. He just can't stay on the field. He picks up these little knocks that take him out before you know two or three drives, and then he has to take another drive to get his groove back. I'm so happy that I mean Dan, you've been doing snap counts. He's been playing a lot more more than usual recently, correct? Yeah, I mean, I haven't done it yet for this yeah. game, but he played the most, you know, both in terms of roll numbers and the highest percentage uh, that he's ever had in the game against Michigan State. You know, he yeah. was down for almost every snap, which is just like you're saying, not something he normally does. Normally they, they go to great pains to uh, to try to keep him rested, and he usually only plays about two-thirds of the game, whereas, again, as compared to somebody like Kabinda, who, until Brandon Smith established himself as an option to come in for a series or two, would play every down of every game. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that's sort of, to, to give a context there, you know, is a guy who plays, you know, uh, until recently played every snap, and Bell would play two-thirds, which is a significant number yeah. for a, you know, high-quality starter to not be playing. Um, yeah. You know, so it's been just recently that they, I think, you know, with his college career coming to the end, it's one of those, you know, leave nothing out there and everything. And, you know, he's been good good in the second half of these games, so I think it's working. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so let's get to that fourth quarter. Uh, Penn State gets into the fourth. I'm pulling up the play-by-play right now. But it's 31-28, and on basically its first, uh, first drive in the fourth quarter, Penn State has the ball. It's going down the field. Uh, they end up scoring uh, because Saquon Barkley ran a wheel route, and that was one of those uh, one of those plays that they've had. Like they've ran that three, four, five times this year, and they have like one little thing always happens. So that when like by the time McSorley throws the ball in, Saquon's not able to come down with it for whatever reason, but it worked out perfectly here. That touchdown happens. We still have uh, Penn State's up 31 to 35 with 13, uh, 41 left in the fourth quarter. Like, what was the most valuable thing that you were willing to wager on Penn State winning at that point, Matt? Um, not a whole lot. Really? It, just the, the way in the game had gone. Um, when Wisconsin kicked that field goal with just, you know, a few seconds left in the third quarter, and I know we're 
you know, semantics here. We're talking about a matter of seconds in yeah, the game yeah. clock. It's fine. Um, it felt like they had kind of stemmed the tide a little bit. You know, Penn State at that point had rolled off 21 straight points going back to the end of the first half. And they had moved the ball. They went down. They, you know, saved for a perfectly timed hit on the quarterback. Um, you know, it would, otherwise they were up by a touchdown at that point. Um, so they had kind of rediscovered their – Wisconsin had rediscovered their offense a little bit. They were able to move the ball. They put points on the board for the first time in the half, and okay, it's on Penn State now to answer. And then four plays later, they do on that just perfectly thrown, thrown wheel route. Um, but I guess I felt better about Penn State's chances after they forced the punt on Wisconsin's ensuing possession. Um, yeah, I, I uh, as you guys both know, I'm a pretty big Indians baseball fan. And you hear it so much in baseball about the response runs. You know, you put up the big inning or you take the lead and you want your pitcher to come out and throw up a zero. And that's really what Penn State's defense did on that next drive. So I guess at the, the halfway point, as it were, in the fourth quarter, I was feeling pretty comfortable. Um, I've commented to one of you guys, I think it was earlier, that I am so glad they kicked the field goal um, from 25 or 30 yards out on that next drive where they got down inside the Wisconsin 10. And... I was feeling pretty good because I knew at the very least a touchdown is going to tie them. Yeah. Um, Two-point conversion debates aside. Um, so I felt better then. Um, but a significant part of the, the anxiety on my part was just my natural trepidation from getting too excited about anything because a lifetime of Cleveland sports fandom and Penn State right, football history in, in, in my lifetime has taught me otherwise to not, you know, to, to hope for the best but expect something not the best to happen. Um, yeah, and I'm sort of on the other end of that spectrum as a Philadelphia fan, you know, a turtle optimist and everything like that. Yeah, well, for sure. Yeah, so that's the first thing that comes to mind when I, I think of your, your sports fandom there, Dan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Dan, um, it, dive into the internal the eternal optimism that you felt uh, heading into the fourth quarter of this football game. Oh, I was feeling good. I, and then when they when they kicked that field goal to go have a touchdown, I was I was feeling very good. I I, I felt like they were they, it was just their game at that point. You know, I, I was not nervous. You know, that, that fourth down stop, I I just it felt like that was that was coming. I I felt very confident about. it. I don't know why. You know, Wisconsin's yeah. a good team. Yeah. Um, you know, I know Penn State's a good second half team and everything like that, but you know they were they were moving the ball decently well. The running game was working and everything, but I just you know it, it was it feels like that kind of season. You know, they'd come back from such they just did not feel like they were gonna they were gonna blow that. Um, yeah. They've done it enough now in the second half of these games where I, I you just I think a lot of fans you know feel very confident and everything. Um, and uh, you know, I feel like uh, this is this team. Uh, you know, deserves uh, that sort of ending in in the uh, you know because they they just they built their uh, their season on doing that sort of thing. Yeah, this almost to me felt a little bit like the pit game, in which Penn State just fell behind. Well, um, but, I'm gonna gonna have to disagree with you there because um, well, the, there's the, they, despite they, one one noticeable they, difference, um, and yeah, they, is, they they lost that game. I'm aware. Uh, because Pitt, for whatever reason, is very good against teams that finish in the top five of the college football playoffs. Uh, but yeah, I, I meant more in that uh, that at a certain point, like the te- at least the offense, like the defense had its troubles against Pitt. Like it started getting super injured really quickly. But at a certain point, like things just started to click and started to go right in a way that, like, if you were watching this game, you would have thought that a different team took the field in the second half. Uh, that like that was the case here. Like heading into the fourth quarter, once uh, Penn State started driving, I was like, "Yeah, I, I feel one hundred percent confident in this," and I have zero idea why. It's just the journey that this team has taken us on. Like it, it, it was going to win a game in the fourth quarter. Like it was going to do everything they needed to do in that quarter to come out on top. I mean, by S and P Plus, they're the best fourth quarter team in America. So there was that, and then of course, like. There's just something poetic about uh, the game-winning. That well, I don't want to say the game-winning, but the game-sealing fourth-down stop. Where I, I lead over to the people I was sitting with, uh, and I basically said, as long as Wisconsin doesn't get inside of the ten-yard line at any point during this drive, I think Penn State wins this football game. 
And they weren't able to do that because, of course, Grant Haley and Marcus Allen teamed up to make a massive play on a fourth down that uh, led to Penn State, one of Penn State's biggest wins of the year. So there was a, that was really cool, really uh, poetic in a way. Uh, how'd you feel after? Like, like I mean, I don't think that... Uh, well, like it's sometimes really hard to put into words what you're feeling after your team wins a big sporting event, uh, because you know we see our teams win sporting events all the time, so we think we're kind of ready for that uh, that big shot in the arm. But then when you consider the magnitude of this one, how this team got here, what this uh, yeah, how, how do I want to phrase this? What these kids have had to face. Uh, over the last uh, year or two of just, uh, you know, you know, like their last year's team obviously had some issues and it was able to work kind of through those and look like almost a completely different football team. It's a young team, all that. So when the clock hit zero, like ju- just what did you do, Dan? Like I know you were at a bar somewhere so or at your house or whatever. So what did you do when the clock hit zero? Like how'd you celebrate this one? Yeah, we we I was at my house. Um, we we were uh, we celebrated a bit at my house. There was some beverages were consumed. Then we went to uh, went to a bar uh, after um, when uh, w- the same bar I went to after they beat um, Ohio State. And yeah, just uh, you know, threw some uh, threw some songs on the jukebox at the bar. The boys were back at our back in town. <laughs> was on. Um, it was funny when I went to the bar. I actually encountered a, an Ohio State fan who uh, who was a little lubed up and wanted to uh, wanted to try to do a little bit of trash talking. So he, he saw my Penn State. I was wearing the, uh, the I was wearing the bunch of fighters shirt, and you know we, it was all people. You know they, it was clear that we were Penn State people. There, you know, three or four of us. There were five of us, and like three or four of us had Penn State stuff on. And the guy says to me, um, he said. Yeah, congratulations on uh, on your win. Too bad you're not going to make the playoff or anything. Uh, you know, and, and was like truly, clearly trying to provoke me into like an argument over the merits of like Ohio State and Penn State. And, and I was like, ah, thanks, man. And he was like, you know, uh, you know, Ohio State's going to make the playoff, and you're not, right? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. He was, and he, <laughs> I, I, he just, he did not expect that reaction from. Him. I was like, yeah, you guys deserve it. You know, we're, we're, we'll go to the Rose Bowl. It's cool. And he he was like totally taken. And he literally said to me, "He just goes, well, I did not expect you to respond like that." So, so what you're and saying, then, Dan, is that he was an asshole. And yeah, and did not and did not have a script for me being like, yeah, you know, I, I don't think Penn State's going to make the playoff. I don't you know, necessarily think that they should, so I don't care. You yeah. know, whatever, cool. Yeah. We won. We're going to the Rose Bowl. I'm going to have a good time. <laughs> and he yeah. he didn't. That was that was sort of that for him. So he, I, hopefully, his night was completely ruined, and he went home and you know. <laughs> Pissed himself in bed, and, and, his, girl, and his girlfriend left him. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that's kind of extreme, there, Dan. Yeah, I was going to say that that really took off uh, <laughs> in a way that I kind of wasn't expecting. But I'm glad we went. I was him. so polite to him, and now <laughs> I and I'm wishing wishing such malice against him. But, I, yeah. I hope he's a podcast listener. Yeah, I hope he's a. We'll, well you know, tell our friends because I, I was sort of thinking about this because you know we have we have Tom do the mess boards thing. Yeah, is there like a blog out there that's doing like a, a an opposing fan base podcast roundup? And, but I but then I realized I'm like, if they're doing it, they're definitely not going to do this because our podcasts are like 90 minutes long, <laughs> and it's like, and it's mostly Bill answering his own questions before he sends it around to everybody else. Yeah, so, you know, it's which which makes it like take you know like my I I'm gonna like I'm supposed to be working right now and I'm gonna go to sleep by by the time we finish recording this. Oh yeah. So like, yeah. Yeah. So I don't think my point being I don't think he's a podcast listener and if he is he definitely bailed a long time ago. Well, if he's no if he's an Ohio State fan, we could probably put in a word in with uh with like the 11 Warriors guys and just say, "Hey, if you were at he's, this bar, he's know? deep in the MGO Wars, I'm sure." Oh, yes, mgowars.com. Uh we'll well one of these days we'll have to have a podcast with a uh, where we just make fun of, uh, well, no, we kind of did that the last time you were on the podcast, Dan, just making fun of Michigan. M- MGO blog editor in chief, Alex Jones. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, there was there was very obviously a global conspiracy to keep Michigan out of the playoff because they beat Penn State by a lot once, and we'll forget the whole they lost to Iowa. I'm just imagining Jim Harbaugh shilling his own brand of whole milk that is supposedly, you know, has uh, you know going to add ten years to your life expectancy, much like Alex Jones's pills. The, yeah, like a whole milk, a whole milk that uh, boosts male vitality, like that would be a. Uh... We, we actually may be, in a, we may be coming up with something. So I think we should table the discussion about uh, Jim Harbaugh being the Alex Jones of college football. And uh, Matt, how would you end up celebrating this one? Uh, you know exactly how I ended up celebrating it, Bill. Yeah. I uh, ended up in a bar with you and some fine folks from the uh, Penn State Alumni Association. And, and, and uh, so, some of our Aurora Lions Horse staff members. And uh, uh, tipped one back and... Um, end of the night with a, a picture with you, me, Sean, and uh, our executive editor, Chris Grovich, with uh, Joe Moorhead at the team hotel. Yes. So, and a, then uh, promptly walked back to my hotel in downtown Indianapolis and was asleep within about uh, five minutes of walking in the hotel room door. <laughs> Nerd. Did you comment to him that it appears that he found some tutties this fall? Uh, I, I did not personally, but I, I do know Sean chatted him up a little bit more and I, I think Bill um, you know had his ear for a couple more minutes. I was I was on the very tail end of, of a long day of of travel. We we left Michigan yesterday morning, uh well Saturday morning if you're not listening to this immediately after recording. Um I at about seven thirty AM um after I had been out of town all week for work. So it was it was a uh, a long day that ended uh much later than my body would have liked, but it was absolutely 100% worth it, even though I uh, had to end the social part of the evening with Bill. Yeah, it, it was unfortunate, and screw yourself, Matt. Uh, speaking of screwing themselves, uh, let's talk about uh, the college football playoff uh, and how Michigan did not make wow. it. Wow. You, sometimes you, you do some stretches with the transitions. But I, know, that one was, I know. That was quite Spot well. on. I know, I know. Thank you, thank you. Even if it wasn't meant to be a compliment. Thank you, anyway. Uh, so we'll so are we talking about Michigan again? Because <laughs> this is excellent. I mean, the thing is, <laughs> let's, I think let's uh, allocate uh, a minute and a half uh, to making fun of Michigan for not making it. Uh, Globalists refereed the game. <laughs> Globalists gave them the spot on the 15-yard line. <laughs> the replay official was a goblin. Running into a goblin's nest. No, was... <laughs> oh man, we. I, I, I don't know what just happened, but, um, but yeah, I did. I did it. Jim Harbaugh is Alex Jones. <laughs> uh, he, he's Alex Jones is very concerned with globalists. Yes, and clearly the because you've read all the conspiracy theories about all of the referees being from Ohio. Yes. Oh yeah, it's, it's it's it is essentially the yeah. Penn State fan referee conspiracy. With, like, a couple keywords changed to make it appropriate to Michigan. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, I think that's where the whole MGO Wars thing kind of started. Like, someone involved in Michigan's football program, like, you know how whenever there's a conspiracy theory, someone will put it onto Facebook and just go like, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying. Well, someone involved in Michigan's football program, I think it was one of their players, like, posted the entire conspiracy theory on Facebook about how, like three of the referees from that game were from Ohio and were Ohio State fans in some capacity. And like it, it was just completely ridiculous. And I'm very happy because – well, actually, no, I'm not very happy because this takes the spotlight um, off the fact that Jim Harbaugh coached a terrible game uh, against Ohio State and hurt his team's chances of making it to the college football playoff, um, which is great and – it's a fun way for his career at Michigan to end because he's taking the Indianapolis Colts job after uh, after Chuck Pagano gets fired. But yeah, so yeah, let's uh, let's actually get to talking about Penn State though, really quickly. Try and get back on track, even though I kind of want to go to bed. Uh, should Penn State have made it, Matt? I'll start with you. There is a case to be made that Penn State is was more deserving than than Washington, but um, yeah, the, the whole argument against. Ohio State not being a conference champion is just ridiculous because one they they did share the division title with Penn State you know didn't have a chance to play for the the division title because of the tiebreaker with Penn State beating them but I have a really hard time saying that a Washington team that lost just the one game to um, a USC team who is um, in my opinion probably one of the best teams in the country um, from a talent standpoint it's 
it's a quite a quite a stretch to say that um, a two loss Penn State team deserved to be in over a one loss Washington team or um, an Ohio State team that yes they beat them but an overall body of work that was much better than Penn State's um, in my opinion. Um, they're, they're really the only thing that really bugs me at all about it is if Penn State had played a schedule out of the out of the Big Ten like what uh, Washington played with Rutgers, Idaho, and like directional A and M Tech. It was like Portland State or, or something. I, I, I think that's right. Regardless, if Penn State had played, just throw in I don't know Buffalo instead of Pitt this year and beat them, and the rest of the season we'll just for the sake of this argument plays out the same. Then Penn State's probably in. Um, Did, they, are they though? I mean, they there was such concern about the fact that they lost by thirty nine to Michigan. I feel like that that yeah. could have still been a, a deciding thing between you know they're both eleven and one. They're both conference champions, but you know they played USC and you know were close, and Penn State played Michigan and got embarrassed. You know, I feel like it, it, it's not a lock. You know, the way that people talk about it. Yeah. Plus, the thing it, in my mind, it's a much much more reasonable debate to have at least as opposed to right the the 11 and 2 versus uh whatever we are 11 and 2 versus 12, 12 and 1 it's just it's it's not a, a debate that i can have you know the pac 12 is down but um it's still one of the major five conferences and they won it with just the one loss and um i mean uh, i mean the, the best way to summarize long. it I think the best way to summarize it is that Washington had a really bad out-of-conference schedule and was bailed out by the fact that the Pac-12 was just good enough to get them quality wins. Yeah, you know, which which is which is fair, you know, and and I, I you know, the, I think the main takeaway is just that, you know, and this is sort of the flaw of of you know doing the rankings every week in the lead up there is that it would have been kind of unfair to Washington to say, all right, you dominated your conference championship game and you fell back, and I know there's a little bit of precedent with that, with the way that they handled a uh, Baylor before, but you know, what did Washington do to, to lose the fourth playoff spot? And yeah. you go, they didn't do anything to lose that fourth playoff spot. So if they had done that from scratch, you know, either, I think there's a more compelling case. You say like, well, maybe Washington wasn't in that fourth spot before, but knowing they were, it's sort of one of those, like, yeah. it's like, how can you move them out there? And, you know, the, with the fact that they have one less loss than Penn state, I, you know, I'm, I'm with, I, you know, I, I did not think Penn state should have been, fourth i thought they should have been fifth i was very comfortable with uh which is also what i thought was going to happen and you know I, i'm very content with how things ended up i'm i'm just very happy that penn state was ahead of michigan because they should have been yes i i mean the thing that was so interesting to me and, and this is just as like a college football fan was uh over the I mean, over the last two years the committee has basically made it a point to say win your conference outright because that is beyond important like in 2000 and uh in 2014 with the Baylor and TCU year where uh I I think we can agree that if the Big 12 just said Baylor is our champion because they have the head-to-head and that's the ultimate tiebreaker instead of doing the whole like we don't want to make Gary Patterson mad because Gary Patterson is a literal crazy person thing Baylor probably gets in over Ohio State, even though Baylor's non-conference schedule was something, like it was as bad, if not worse, than Washington's was. I th- yeah, I mean, I think it's clear now that it's just, you know, yeah. the Power 5 thing is a little bit inaccurate. Yeah. Because it's really the Power 4, the Big 12 is sort of in this, like, uh, you know, floating in between the the uh, you know the power four and you know being like an AAC. You know, they're yeah. they're almost closer to the AAC in terms of clout. They yeah, you know they're... it it because it, it, it just there you know if you win the other conferences you have an extremely good chance unless you know it's a Penn State Ohio State situation. Whereas if you win the Big Twelve, that's never going to be you know at least in the in the coming years that's never going to be a guarantee. Yeah, and you you need basically a team to be like last year's Oklahoma team where it just rolls over everybody in the conference because I feel like having that extra game and that extra chance to showcase how good your team is like in the past, that was huge. And that was some, again, something that kept Baylor and TCU both out in 2014. And I felt like this year, the uh, I don't know if it's, you know, the fact that Jeff Long is out and Kirby Holcutt in now as the person in charge or what, but it feels like this year they were establishing that above everything else, 
we want to make sure that the four teams that are playing for a national championship, almost regardless of what their resume looks like, even though all four teams have very impressive resumes, we want to make sure they're the teams that we think are the four best teams in America. And like, I think that's probably the right way to handle it. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Uh, like the issue that comes in there is that they're not like, it's hard to sometimes explain what that is. And I think people kind of like having that explainer, but if you just say, listen, we think they're the four best, there's not too much you can do about that. And hopefully it leads to some really great games. I was really interested though, in the, uh, Penn State should be in over Washington camp because that like didn't seem like it was a thing until after Washington just beat the hell out of a top 10 Colorado team and Penn State had to have a come from behind win to beat Wisconsin. So that was a little weird. But other than that, like I think the committee got it right. I think that when your consolation prize is the Rose Bowl, that's about as good of a consolation prize as there is. And yeah, I think... uh I think it was a pretty good weekend. Uh, I don't know about you guys, agree. but yeah, okay. I was going to say that take maybe a little bit uh, hot, but we're, I mean, the, this pod is at minute 106, and we've been on this call for 90 goddamn minutes, so I think I'm going to do the wrap-up thing right now, if that's okay with you guys. By all means. Thank God. Uh, Dan, is that You mean to close the show? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, do, you have a, do, you, do you have something planned? sleep uh and then i have to no no no. i mean to, to close the show i don't care what happens after i stop talking okay yeah i was i was like dan like since when do you care like that's that's weird uh but yeah i'm just gonna say like the whole follow us on social media thing you know all the channels already yeah. soundcloud itunes google play do that we have a new shirt it's a conference champ shirt it's a very nice shirt you should purchase it uh yeah da, 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 keep reading the site keep supporting the site we we love you all blah 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 for Dan Smith, for Matt DeBear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Thank you for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. Take care, everyone. Bye, my milk.